we have Zach Jolst from Amazon. He's a research scientist working in Seattle. So we spent the first half an hour or so talking about YouTube, how we all run our channels and what our philosophy is on YouTube. We went on to talk about the bring your own latent paper. So it's really important that you go and watch Yannick's video on that just to get a, a feel for what we're talking about. But the bring your own latent paper is a, a new approach to unsupervised uh, contrastive learning but you no longer need to do negative sampling. You completely dispatch the need for negative sampling. Um, after that, we went on to talk about knowledge graphs and graphical models in machine learning. We talked about some applications of this, so fraud detection. Uh, and then afterwards, we finished off by talking about automated machine learning. And uh, people who know me know that I'm quite cynical about automated machine learning. So we had a great conversation about that. Anyway, remember to like, comment, and subscribe, and we'll see you back next week oh my god he's had a haircut <laughs> oh wow you look you look like you're coming from a propaganda video or something <laughs> <laughs> yep. amazing well welcome back to the machine learning street talk youtube channel with me tim scarf my two compadres yannick kilcher and connor shorten Today, we have an incredibly exciting guest from Amazon. Um, Zach Jost is a research scientist who works over in Seattle. And he has several channels that um, he publishes really interesting content uh, to, to his followers. So he's got a YouTube channel called Welcome AI Overlords. He's got a Discord server, and he's also got a blog. His interests are deep learning, graphs in machine learning, and knowledge graphs, and various approaches to represent graphical information, automated machine learning, generative adversarial networks, machine learning security, and fraud detection. So, Zach, welcome to the show. Wow, thanks for the intro. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm a big fan of all of you guys, so it's really cool to be a part of this. So, thanks. Amazing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? I mean, how did you launch the YouTube channel? How did you get the job at Amazon? Have you been a machine learning aficionado your entire life or is, or is this quite a new thing? <laughs> yeah. First of all, I'd like to hear your guys' stories too, if there's time. But mine is that I was, physics is my educational background. So I was working in some nanomaterial stuff and ended up getting a job in the semiconductor industry, starting out as a um, process engineer. So doing ion implantation is pretty fascinating topic, but uh, I won't digress into that now. Anywho, later on, I would say the data science term started coming into the kind of popular parlance. And uh, you had like the DJ Patil and Hillary Mason and those early famous kind of data scientists. And I got interested in the field because as part of my job, the, the thing I really excelled at and, and enjoyed was the data analysis piece. So we would run these controlled experiments trying to understand the physical processes and and use statistics to choose which changes to make to the process to improve it. And I really enjoyed that and kind of dove deeper into statistics and got it into my head that I'd like to learn more about machine learning. So I started kind of studying in my free time in the evenings and stuff, learning Python and all the, the stuff that comes with it, right? Like Git and how to install all this stuff on a Windows machine and just, it, it was, Pretty daunting in the beginning, but you know you kind of chip away at it a little bit at a time. And then, uh, long story short, I had ended up quitting that job to focus solely on closing that remaining knowledge gap once I got a little closer, and eventually landed at Capital One as my first data scientist position, and uh, moved to Texas. So I was there for about 18 months and learned a lot from the people there about actually doing data science as as opposed to kind of just getting my toe 
uh, dipped into the water with tutorials and all that stuff. So got some real practical experience of building models in a production environment and all the regulatory stuff and requirements around operation of these things. Uh, so eventually I decided I wanted to come out to Seattle. I have a, a cousin here and he was at Microsoft for a long time. And so started applying and eventually got on at AWS. And it's been just a amazing experience that the people there have, there's just so much knowledge and so many opportunities and people have diverse backgrounds and have worked on so many cool problems. So it's just like a very fast acceleration of the learning rate for, for me. So that's been really cool and have been here about three years. We're currently, I'm working on uh, the Amazon fraud detector service. So I started out in the internal fraud group where we were trying to find a fraud in internal to the AWS platform and uh, built a lot of machine learning stuff around that and uh, the DevOps piece of it. And then uh, a group of us from that group kind of split off to work on this external service, which is now in preview. So um, been doing that for a little while. And how did it, you know, how did the, the YouTube channel come come about? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I met a guy, Zakiel. So shout out to Zakiel. He posted a video on LinkedIn that I found pretty inspiring. That we I didn't know each other uh, prior to this. And it was about him sort of being rejected for like the 15th time from Facebook or something like that. And how he was, it was a very optimistic video of just sort of keeping grinding. And I reached out to him, basically offering any help that I could because he was in the Seattle area and he seemed like, you know, someone of upstanding character and, and talent. So I was going to see if I could get him into Amazon. And then we just sort of started hanging out occasionally. And he said to me, he had a lot of experience with social media and, and that sort of thing. He said, hey, you should start a YouTube channel. And I kind of laughed it off. But then it planted the bug. And then the more I thought about it, I'm like, oh, why not? You know. And then I started thinking about how that would happen. And then just started putting a couple of videos out and, and then just got hooked. It, it's been so much fun. And then now that it started to expand into uh, similar to you guys trying to find like first authors of papers and getting them on, it's just been so exciting to have an excuse to reach out to these people and talk to them and and pick their brains. You know, usually it would it would seem strange to just randomly email someone to ask them whatever silly questions you have, but for some reason, if you broadcast it on the internet, it it justifies <laughs> that. So that's so true. I would articulate it in a similar way. Being plugged into this nexus, it's a forcing function, and I've never felt more passionate and more kind of switched on by all of this stuff every single day in my notif notification feeds I've got you know Yannick just posted this video over here and Connor posted it over here and it, it's just created this incredible energy that I don't think I would have had if I wasn't creating content so no, I, I honestly think that there's something magical not only about consuming content but also creating it yeah totally like the I also have written a little bit of blog articles and stuff and the way that started was, you know, you work really hard to dive in deep to really learn something. And for me, if I write it down, it's like, okay, next time I need to learn this thing, these are my notes to shortcut so I don't have to do all that really tedious work again, you know? And then you put it on the internet and, and hopefully other people find some value out of it as well. And, uh, but like you said, it, it's also this kind of feedback mechanism, this forcing function. It's like, okay, well, since I'm going to put this on the internet, 
I might may as well like really do my homework on these other things, or maybe I'll reach out to this person. And something about publishing makes you just behave differently. And you know, for for yeah. this talk, I prepared mm -hmm. and read papers that I wouldn't normally have read, and it's just this really nice flywheel effect. I, I think that's a big part of it. You know, on GitHub, for example, as soon as you get someone to publish their work on GitHub, the quality will go up because it's observable to everyone. <laughs> yeah, what's your take on like uh, your experience writing and making videos? Because I also I started off writing blog posts, publishing them on Medium and towards data science, and then I started making YouTube videos and now I haven't had the motivation to write anymore. <laughs> like, I think the video making, there's something to like talking through it that I think you learn so much more than taking the notes and writing it down. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, there's also just so many hours in a day and the video, something about the video, I don't know if it's the novelty, but it's just gotten my attention and then therefore it falls off on the other stuff. But yeah, I agree. Being able to also construct the visual content, I think that goes along with that narrative, really kind of unlocks something in my brain when I'm sitting there thinking like, well, what's the best visual that I can come up with that really demonstrates the essence of this? And I don't know if it just activates a, a different reasoning portion of my brain or something to think about the problem differently, this kind of geometric interpretation or something. But yeah, I agree. There's something really satisfying about the visual part of YouTube and and forcing yourself to put that together. That's fascinating. It, it turns on another part of your brain in a way. When you write an article, it's far more technical. In a way, it's higher fidelity. But when you when you create a video, you have the capability to present it in a myriad of different ways. I use music on my videos. You can use graphics. And another thing is it's honing your presentation skills because you're practicing. I mean, I typically do several takes when I do my videos and I'm practicing how to articulate and distill something down. The distillation bit's interesting as well because they say you only understand something well when you've distilled it and can explain it to, to layman's. So that, that there's something about the process of content creation which really helps your own learning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just think it's so much harder to uh, record yourself presenting it than it is to write down the notes. Like, you know, because you have to remember it really when you're going to be talking about it in a different way. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys have, when you record yourselves, do you have some sort of thing you're looking at, a prompt, or do you actually memorize it? Uh, how do you go about that? Well, I know from experience that people can tell if you're reading from a script. Uh, I, tr I tried to do that because, of course, it's it's so much easier if you read from a script. But what I do now is is I just think of high-level meta points, and I will just say them out loud several times and through repetition it really sticks in your mind because then i'll be on a conference call at work or something and i'll say oh yeah basically they were doing this this and this and, and you can articulate it almost like a, a generative function it sounds slightly different every time but it rolls off the tongue and i think if, if you can't trust yourself to verbalize something off the cuff i, I don't think you really know it yeah i know when i started early on the uh, as soon as you click the button to record like the first few times and that big cameras just pointed right at your dumb face you're just <laughs> the nerves kick in and like your brain just doesn't work and you're so harsh in judging yourself it's like you know you don't nail it the first take and it's like oh man what what am i doing here and then like my wife is in the room the first time and that 
you, you shouldn't do that uh, if you're just starting out you should definitely be alone i think but uh, i think what i've learned through doing it more is just to have a little bit uh, softer judgment of myself it's like okay no one's going to see the first five takes that i butchered you know as long as you get it at the end that's all that really matters so uh, for anyone that's like kind of on the fence or has tried and and struggled like i can't do this i would say just like just continue to push on because it, it gets a little bit easier and then you also just learn to not judge yourself so harshly yeah it's 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 never as as horrible because i think i think i know a lot of people have this and i have this too when you like hear your own voice or see your own face it's terrible like if you then if you go and look at your own video or try to edit it you're like ah this sounds yeah. terrible and and this looks terrible and you're grinning your grin is terrible yeah. it's never as bad for other people just you know anyone starting out that's everyone has that everyone <laughs> looks at themselves and goes like ah oh, that's yeah. so cringy <laughs> yeah but I, I'm, I'm not necessarily against scripts i think if if the point where you notice it's scripted maybe it's just a bad script i don't know but <laughs> you know it's it's not a script that is in natural but if you have if you have a natural script there can be there can be value if you want to be really precise i think a lot of so i'm i'm like the opposite of of maybe tim because tim you make like very very high quality videos with lots of takes and lots of edits and i just sit down and i just do a single take and like i have 50 billion in there and <laughs> and mm, let me think about this and and then yeah just I just don't, you just have to not care, I guess. <laughs> I, I know, but the, the thing is, I mean, Yannick's got loads more subscribers and his content is loads better. And the, the reason is quite simple. A couple of times I, I went to see a public speaking coach and, and he said to me that the art is making everything seem like a, a fresh thought making it seem like it's just come into my mind and it's rolling off my tongue if if it mm. feels stage managed of, of course it, i think if you get really good at this you you can actually um, structure it quite a lot and people won't realize but if people can sense that there's a structure to it and it's not it's not a genuine fresh thought, I, I think it doesn't come off quite as well well the subscribers i uh, like have a different uh opinion maybe it's just uh because i i upload more at the moment so <laughs> no, no. I, I think what's what's amazing about your content is you you do it in one take, and it's clearly just coming from your brain, and it's just a beautiful stream of consciousness. And if it were me, of course, I would go back and I would get rid of the coughs and the ums and so on. But in a way, that makes it even more genuine and authentic that you don't do that. Yeah. So I, I actually went and looked. I. It wasn't a super thorough analysis, but I got a bunch of channels kind of relevant to our space. And I looked at their upload frequency and their age and their number of subscribers and all that stuff and, and looked at some distributions. And I was really surprised that upload frequency wasn't that highly correlated with the rate of subscribership. So because I was sort of beating up on myself about my frequency of uploading because it's just so hard with the way I'm doing it so I'm like man I need to like change the way I do this because I'm never going to be able to put out more than like once a month so Yannick I I think you should give yourself a little bit more credit it the volume of course is something to <laughs> yeah. do with it but I think I originally over indexed on the thinking about making really high quality visuals 
I think what people most care about is high quality information. And if you can do that with high quality visuals, that's great. And then all the more reason to watch it. But if you have a bunch of fluff, but not much content, I don't think you'll make it. Yeah, that's yeah, true. And, and I think the pers personability as well. And mm. I think one, some of the most successful YouTubers have a real character and a real ease with the camera and with their audience. And there's a sense that they're invited to the party. You're kind of inviting people into this experience. Do you yeah, think that's actually, learnable? Sorry. Yeah, dev I definitely think it's learnable. Like the more you rep it out, the more comfortable you become with it. But I actually have an alternative, alternative hypothesis with this. I think the more you upload is better. Like if you can manage it, you know, like once you've, the step one is be consistent over a long period of time. Like if mm. you've been doing it for say four to six months, then I think it's like turn it up and let as much flow out of it as you can as you can manage. It's like managing yourself more so. But it might be one of those things that if your content is good, then there's a multiplicative relationship with your upload frequency. Well, if I think every so every everyone everyone that is a bit advanced, they, they always say consistency, right? It's never that much frequency, I agree. It's more like consistency and and I, I I would want to make more high quality videos and fewer of them, but I'm just too lazy, honestly. Like I, I can't get myself to edit stuff. It's like, oh, nah. I like I did meme review, right? Together with my friend Antonio. And that took me like a month to edit. It's it's so dumb, but it's <laughs> I'm so lazy at that. So, yeah. I think one of the things that is good on your video, Janik, as well, is it's a little bit like listening to a Sam Harris podcast, as in you, you have quite a relaxing, calming voice. And you you kind okay. of you place people in a, a, warm, <laughs> a warm, comfortable space. And and the other thing is, is you are very good at saying, well, basically what this means is this. So you're saying, oh, the, the reason they did this is this. We're going to be talking about um, contrastive loss in a little while. And uh, I was just reading the the paper, I think, you know, the face net paper on the triplet loss. And they never really explained why the margin parameter was there. And you would just say, well, the reason they put the margin parameter is, is just because of this. And people were like, oh, OK, I, I had no idea that was the reason. So, so I think providing intuitions and providing that kind of expert commentary and context, I think, is super valuable. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking for a while of, about the space here and i mean there are not that many let's say youtubers in in really the space of there there are some in the space of ai right but it really in the space of ai research there there really aren't aren't that many and i i appreciate a lot that we all we all make different styles of content uh, which i find really really cool so yeah i wouldn't like even though I say I would want to make higher quality content, I think um, you know that you you already do that, and and uh, I, I appreciate like everyone has their own style, and I think that's cool. I think we should never converge on the same style or something. We don't want to be like ten channels that do the same thing. It's because even now when we do the same papers, you know, you get four and or with us four, you get four entirely different views on the same. Thing and and entirely different takes and, and I th I think that's awesome. So my question to you was what what is kind of the most you might be reading your comments and stuff. What is the most criticism that you get? Like the most frequent nag that people have with your with your channels? I've I've been really lucky in that 
I don't have many people watching my videos, I guess. So the, the percentage of people that complain is very low. I, I can only think of one or two, and they were so innocuous that nothing that's bothered me. But you guys may have had uh, just a higher volume. Yeah, I used to get upset about it, but now I just take the criticism and move on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't bother me anymore. <laughs> I, I don't think we've had anything that bad, actually. Uh, someone emailed me over, a, there was something I said that wasn't inclusive, which really made me, it really challenged me to be more careful about how, how I say things. And on the ML Reddit, sometimes we don't get past the gatekeepers on there, but, you know, it, it's fairly uh, fairly innocuous, to be honest. Yeah, I found the, the 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 community in general is is super friendly on YouTube. At least that's that's also my experience. It's it's amazing. The comments are mostly positive, and I appreciate all the comments. And uh, yeah, because I just hear other YouTubers say like, "Oh, the comment sections," and <laughs> maybe we're just in a really lucky subfield that where where people are are just interested in the in the content. I think I think that's awesome. Yeah, by far the highest frequency comment I get is something along the lines of thank you and keep doing what you're doing and it really helped me understand or something like that. So almost every comment I get is something that makes me want to do it more. I think if I was getting criticized a lot, I probably wouldn't still be making content. It, it would just be too much mental burden to overcome. So I, I think we're lucky in that respect. Amazing. Yeah, well, into the bootstrap latent, I was just like... Yeah, with me, I get a lot of comments where it's like either somebody presents their idea and then I have to like think about it. You know what I mean? Or it's mm -hmm. like, could you explain more at 546 or whatever? And so for me, answering comments, sometimes it can almost feel like a whole like two hour block of my day because it's the machine learning subfield where these comments are like things you have to think about. It's not mm -hmm. like something that you can quickly. So, yeah. Yeah. What What is a bit, what is a bit, how should I say, special is that usually what gets the most attention is when i do like news or or you know drama or something which i feel it's you know i i make a video about it just because i want to say what's happening and so on but yeah it definitely gets more attention than the, just the paper videos and but what i was really uh, positively surprised by is i made a video about how i read a paper and I thought I didn't really thought, think much of it, but many people asked me for it, like, "How do you read papers?" And I'm like, yeah. "I don't have a special method. I just start at the top and I read it." And, <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, "Okay." So I'm like, and that and that was received fairly positively. So I think there's a lot of lot of stuff still to do in in all of this. I think the criticism criticism I get the criticism I get the most is whenever I like do some weird sounds or my laptop fan just I like I have this old tablet where I record the stuff that fan is just booming because of the screen recording and the, I guess the request I get the most is to write code uh, for these mm. papers but I mean that's uh, for a lot of these papers it's just a lot of work right and and that's yeah. that's what you realize when you know, you're trying to sit down and then you first of all, you do two hours of plumbing to get the data set in the correct whatnot. And then you can maybe get the method to run and then you have to wait like what like a machine learning coding video is like, OK, I'm going to code this. 
okay, and now we'll train the model. And there's like, come, <laughs> okay, and for, we're gonna sit here for 30 minutes. <clears throat> it's, it's so weird. <laughs> so you have to do it like over multiple days and stuff. Yeah, actually something weird happened to me. I was gonna make a video about, oh, I had this really, really dumb idea, that, you know, it's probably not gonna work, uh, but I'll just make a video about how I would go about implementing a research idea, right? So I sat mm. down and coded blah, 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 blah. And then I let it run, and then it actually worked. And I'm like, oh, crap, what am I doing now? Interesting. So, yeah, so that's, I hope that's a, a video that I can get out soon. Because, yeah, so maybe your thoughts on this as well. Because my, so my original reason for starting my channel personally, and I, I really want to hear from you as well, but my original idea was just I thought it would just help me understand papers better. As you said initially, like I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read papers anyway, so I might as well make a video about them, right? So others can understand it too. And if, you know, 20 people watch me, I have accountability to not basically lie to 20 people <laughs> about what right. is in the paper. So I must understand it. And especially, yeah, the, these early papers, with like that but but eventually it dawned on me that you you could do actual research in this manner where you just real open about what you do and you make this as a video and not only complete work because right now everyone's sitting in their box or with their little team right and they're like ah. and then once they have all the results they're like archive here we are right this is new and it, it is so different to how we do things for example in software engineering where we're, you know, people go on GitHub and they're like, here is like my initial whatnot. Uh, and then people see it. Sometimes they comment on it and stuff. I want to see research going to much more in a direction like that. And I believe that, for example, YouTube or things like this is a great place of doing this where you're you don't have to actually film yourself coding, but it could just be like, hey, I have this project. Here's what it's the, here is my intermediate work, my intermediate results, right? And, you know, just let people comment on it and stuff. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about kind of a future like that? Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. I'm, I'm not super deep into the world of publishing papers. So uh, I don't know if I have a great perspective on that. But what I will say is I've, one of my ongoing annoyances, I think, whether it's found well-founded or not, is it seems like when I read a paper, similar to Tim's comment before, it's like, why aren't they just saying it in English exactly what is going on here? And I realize mm -hmm. the peer review process requires some level of formalism, and, and it, that's good in, in a lot of cases. But it seems like there's this big vacuum b between people that are trying to learn and then like the information, and then it's not presented in this pedagogical way, right? It, it's presented in this way of like a scientific defense or, or whatever. But for someone who's not already at the, the edge of that field, it's just really daunting. And I found that whenever I enter a new field, because, you know, again, my, my history is in physics and stuff. Whenever you start reading a paper, it's just such a struggle because every section there's so much jargon and it's not really until you read dozens or even a hundred papers that you can pick up another paper and then be pretty comfortable reading through it and i think that's a a blocker for a lot of 
people that would like to be introduced to some of the cutting edge research, but they just aren't willing to invest that amount of effort and then still not really get this reward when they finish the paper. So um, I think there's a lot of value people uh, like us can add that are familiar enough that they can say, all right, this stuff you can ignore. And then the core of this thing I'm going to explain in a mostly pedagogical English way. So that's kind of my motivation for writing and, and making content is like, let's just take all this formalism out for a minute and maybe we'll return to it because it's interesting. But if you just want to understand what's going on here. So we're about to get into bootstrap your own Leighton and throughout the, pap the paper, they're constantly comparing it with SimCLR. And it's like, there's no diagram of SimCLR in the paper. There's no description of it. It's just a direct comparison with this thing that you probably haven't read if you're like brand new to it. Exactly. It's easy to think that these authors are actually being elitist. And sometimes they are. There's a paper called Troubling Trends in ML Scholarship where it talks about mathiness. In order to get something published, you need to have gratuitous mathematical formulas. But based on the papers I've read, I, I see the opposite, actually. They're trying to be as clear as they can. The problem is they are so deep into this one topic, they just don't even know what it's like to not know what SimCLR is or to not know what this particular thing is. So the, the real value proposition there is to be able to articulate this in a way that most people can understand. Because if you're just a, a layman reading through these papers, there will be so many blockers, there'll be so many concepts that you won't understand, and it will just stop you from being able to make progress reading the paper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah right, I, I well. definitely don't have an expectation of the uh, academic writers to, you know, that's not their job, it's to take that on. I'm just saying that that leaves a gap and people like us can try to fill it. I, I don't think they're doing anything wrong or I'm not accusing them of being elitist or anything because they're doing a very specific job and the peer review process for all its uh, strengths and weaknesses is, is there and they need to play that game and they play it very well. But uh, it does leave a gap, I think. Well, shall we move on to the contrastive learning and bring your own latent? I, I wanted to give just like a, a very quick introduction to the topic. I did a video on my YouTube channel with Eric Krymersch recently talking about the quadruplet loss. So some of this is, is uh, in my mind, but at some point this concept of contrastive learning was invented. And the idea is, is that you typically have an encoder and you want to learn a representation which has this behavior. So if you have a seven going in and a two going in, you want them to be projected into the embedding space far apart from each other. And typically these things are achieved with Siamese networks. So you have uh, two encoders, but the weights are shared between the two encoders. And then you have a loss function and the loss function is this contrastive loss. So if you have here two zeros, you would expect them to be uh, projected into the same space in a seven and a two very, very far apart. So far, so good. Now, the contrastive loss is very, very similar to the softmax. And it's a function of the similarity between the pair of images that you're interested in. And there's a temperature parameter as well, kind of divided by all of the similarities between one image and all of the other images. So there is some variations on the contrastive loss. This is where it starts to get quite interesting, actually. So uh, the, the FaceNet paper introduced this concept of the triplet loss. 
and the triplet loss was when you had an anchor, a positive and a negative. And as you can see here, the, the distance here is a function of, so I is the anchor and J is the positive and K is the negative. So it's a function of the distance squared between the anchor and the positive, take away the anchor and the negative plus a margin parameter alpha. Now you can see this is all starting to get quite esoteric and it gets even worse than this. But the idea is, is that you want to have a clustering behavior that kind of improves the, you know, makes tighter clusters. So the, the intra-class similarity is uh, is closer and the inter-class distance is, is further. So that's why there's been so much research on different types of contrastive loss. And then these folks introduced something called the quadruplet loss, which introduced metric learning on on the, that objective so in, in the quadruplet loss rather than just having the anchor the positive and the negative you have a second negative and it it models a, a, a second push between the two negatives and inside the loss function instead of using distances we're now using a metric network which is learned and there are now two alpha parameters and you can just see how hacky this gets and on, on this video with eric crimosh he implemented this and it produced worst even worse results than the triplet loss and when you are doing this negative sampling as well, you, you need to come up with a, a mining strategy that will find hard sample. Basically, you want to find really, really difficult examples that will make the algorithm converge as quickly as possible. Now, this bring your own latent paper, it does a wonderful thing because it just completely dispatches with the need to have negative sampling. I hand over to you guys for the description. <laughs> Well, it's a it's a bit it's a bit of of magic, right? Because what you're saying with the with the original any sort of contrastive loss is that things that are things that I know should be similar, they should be close in the in the latent space, and things that I know should be not similar, they should be far apart. So now you leave away this far apart thing. You only have things that I know should be similar. They must be similar in latent space. So there is technically nothing that keeps the network from uh, from just putting everything together, right? Because if everything's similar, certainly things that are supposed to be similar are similar. And I think that's the the, the surprising novelty of that paper is the is the fact that it it precisely doesn't converge to these bad situations. It actually works, and that's. Yeah, it's sort of a bit of magic. And I've had people people in the comments who were very helpful when I made a video about this, um, trying to reason why this could happen. But I'm not entirely convinced yet. Yeah. But there's, yeah, it's definitely cool. I guess I'm kind of sold on like the moving average target encoder being different. Like it's not like a Siamese network where we're sharing waste on both sides. We have this kind of moving average on the target side. So I think maybe that's what regularizes it. I mean, it, it, yeah, like I watched your video and I was like, yeah, they should just map it to a constant representation. It's like amazing that it doesn't do that. But so I think maybe it's the moving target paired with the data augmentation or something like that. Has to be mm -hmm. one of those yeah. two, right? Should the we, data augmentation seems key. Should we pause and give a brief overview of what the implementation is of uh, bring bootstrap your own latent? Yeah, go for it. Introduce it, Zach. <laughs> okay, so uh, there's a, a network that they call the online network, and then a network that they call the target network. And the idea is you only have positive pairs, and the online network is trying to output the prediction of what the target network is going to generate. And so it, in the first case, they'll take 
an image and they'll add some sort of augmentation to it, some manipulation of it. And that's the, the online network's job is to predict what a different or the same image, but with a different augmentation, what that will be output for the target. So you're sort of trying to find some kind of invariance situation where you're manipulating the same image in two different ways and then using one network to predict what the output of the other network will be. And then, of course, there's this trick of instead of having two totally separate networks, I'm going to make both the networks essentially the same, but one has a set of weights and the other one is the moving average of those weights from previous grading updates. So it seems very strange on the surface, and I guess it, it is. But I think, in essence, they're trying to avoid the weird artifacts that come from using contrastive loss. And just the notion, I think, is kind of weird that you're going to learn something by comparing it against randomness. Because in some sense, it, it makes sense that, okay, here's positive pairs and here's negative pairs, learn the difference. But on the other hand, it could be a, a kind of trivial task. And, and as you mentioned, Tim, it, it's odd. There's some skill and engineering in coming up with the right samples, the right negative samples to put in if you want to have any hope of actually learning something. So I, I think the noise contrastive estimation paper proved the convergence properties of this sort of approach. But of course, that's with like infinite data and infinite time. And in the real world, you, you need something less than uh, infinity to work with. And then yeah. it comes down to all these tricks of like, well, how do you actually sample from the noise distribution so that you have efficient learning? And then I think one particular example in this um, set of papers, they were talking about the SIM CLR as a baseline. What was interesting there was they found that they had to add in this color augmentation. So they would like randomly perturb the color makeup. And they said the reason they had to do that is because when they took a, a random crop of an image, that the model could essentially learn to just map the color histograms because random crops of the same image had matching histograms. So the model you know, found this shortcut of, oh, I don't actually have to learn a great representation. I can just look at the color histogram. So that, to me, that's a great example of the type of behavior you get that you don't want that's just an artifact of this um, negative sampling thing. So now they're having to engineer these creative ways to get around it. So if you can instead just not do that, and that's a, a set of problems you don't have to try to engineer a way around. Yeah, it's it stands to reason that getting rid of the negative samples is a good thing, especially with the triplet loss. There's a combinatorial explosion of, of possible, you know, triplets that you could select. And it's just really, really difficult. And I think one of the lessons that we've learned, say, with denoising autoencoders, is that what you really need to do is find examples that are on the manifold and off the manifold. It doesn't necessarily need to come from anywhere. But I'm, I'm trying to develop intuition on what are the key things about this paper that makes it work. The, the really important thing seems to be the data augmentations. And that is kind of that idea of just pushing an example off the manifold. So rather than needing to find a negative, which is normally uniformly selected from the training set, let's just make some kind of modification to push it off the manifold. The other thing is this MoCo thing. Now, I, I, I hope maybe you guys can give me some intuition here, but you have you have this Siamese network, but you only update the weights on the top one, and then the weights on the second one is the exponentially weighted moving average, but you don't update that. And then 
you have the two representations that come out and you build another network to kind of predict one from the other. So if you were to deconstruct that, where, where is most of the value um, in that configuration? I just want to talk a little more about the data augmentation. And uh, when Zach was talking about the color histogram augmentation avoids that one shortcut. So I think it, like it's so interesting talking about these data augmentations. Here's one paper, should I zoom in on this? This is uh, automatic shortcut removal for self-supervised representation learning, where they have this parametric function that learns how to corrupt the image in an adversarial way to avoid these shortcuts. So it's like the color histogram thing is intuitive to us that we can come up with that augmentation, but how do we kind of search for these augmentations is something that I think is really interesting. Because we don't know all the shortcuts it might take. But how do, how do they find the shortcuts? Well, what they do is they have like an adversarial search. So the adversary is going to put the image through some, it's like this idea of like differentiable data augmentation because rotation or flipping the images, it's still just an F of X on our image. And so we're yep. applying some transformation to it. So why not just parameterize it? So I've seen another take on this idea of parameterizing the data. I mean, which one is this? Okay, so this one is, they're going to take the image and put it through some kind of neural network to augment the image. So they have these two images and they create new data images by having this idea of differentiable augmentation. So it's like, are we going to be hand designing these augmentations or how do we get away from hand designing these augmentations is something that I think is super interesting, super powerful so for something like these contrastive methods that, is, as Tim mentioned, is there are only two, it has to be either the data augmentation or maybe something with this momentum update of the target network, right? But I think it's more likely that the data augmentation is the workhorse in this. Well, we, we know that from the paper, they do a full ablation of the momentum thing, right? They Because they have a table in there where they fully, where they just say, okay, we, do, we just stop gradient of the online. So both our networks are just the same, but we only train one, but we always copy the parameters over. It's not a moving average. And that just doesn't work with their method, like accuracy of zero. And uh, so you might you might make the case, but then also the augmentations, it, it hurts when you take them away. Now they claim it doesn't hurt as much as in like SimCLR, but still, and they don't have a full ablation. So they go baseline, remove grayscale, remove color, crop and blur only, and then crop only. And I think a lot of papers show that especially the random crop is such a big, is such a big workhorse of these methods. It would be have been nice to see here what happens if they don't do any augmentation at all and just do this, just do this moving average thing. I, yeah, I, I, have no I idea. wonder about this idea of. So again, I'm not like deep into this part of the literature, but why are they kind of not trying to encode the augmentation itself as part of this? For instance, why not have a an output of the network that's trying to predict the actual augmentation procedure, and then use that so that that's part of the understanding of the network. Because when I think about how, how we imagine things, we could reason about this is the same thing as that because I can understand what transformation would need to be applied. And there's some sorts of transformations that are going to make this object unrecognizable from this other object. And being able to kind of internalize that intuition seems to me valuable, but I haven't seen anything in these references that do that. Are you guys aware of anything that w does do something like that? 
Well, the the first the first batch of self-supervised uh, learning papers, they were doing something similar where they, for example, they turned the image in one of four directions and then the network actually had to predict the the rotation that happened at the beginning. And that made the net, that was the, the objective. It wasn't like a contrastive loss or anything. It was a classification to explicitly understand which augmentation was used. But I'm always very skeptical of these, like let's learn augmentations and so on, because ultimately what we're doing with augmentations is we say, we know that this particular transformation does not change the nature of the image. And an algorithm like a, a, a CNN or something like this just can't make that determination. There are many, many things that actually change. So if, if like we are talking about street signs and reading street signs, or <laughs> it, it's actually a, a flip is not the coolest thing you can do, right? Like <laughs> it's a one way, this way or this way. It's, it's different. So it's it's not like we as humans understand you shouldn't do a flip right there. And I'm very doubtful that augmentations like automatic augmentations or adversarial augmentations can do much in that space because like so in terms of adversarial examples, there are so many of them that okay the ones you're going to find are going to be valid but they're not nearly all of them they're not nearly and they're only going to be one particular class of them so it's very limited a couple of thoughts about this because the first thing is there are some network architectures that the work from cohen and welland for example is uh, about creating let's say steerable cnn so that's almost encoding the augmentations into the architecture as an inductive prior so what they do is they'll take the um, the cnn filters and they'll automatically rotate them 90 degrees and 180 degrees to give it that kind of uh, in invariance to rotations in the input space and what we're talking about here is kind of like the same thing in reverse we're just going to augment the the, the data itself so that's not a prior, that's experience. So what we're doing is is either by increased experience or increased priors, we're helping learn something which is still semantic because it doesn't matter whether the dog is brown or blue or rotated. Semantically, it's still a dog and we're trying to uh, trick the algorithms in, into believing so. We were just talking about metric learning and I know Yannick was talking on this as well. Would it be possible to do augmentation learning? But it reminded me a bit of Cholet's priors you know he's he's saying oh if we, we should just figure out all of the human priors and we should just hard code them in and that presupposes that all of the relevant uh, you know augmentations or transformations could be analytically enumerated so would it make sense to learn the augmentations using a separate network well if you learn this here's the thing if you learn augmentations instead of hard coding them you have hard coded something else so if you learn the augmentation using like an adversarial example generator, you know, adversarial examples, they have a loss function and they have a constraint. So an adversarial example in images, it's usually you're not allowed to go away more than eight out of 255 units of color from the original image. And so, so there, there is our prior again, our human prior that says visually two images are similar if they deviate by not more than this. So I, I think, Maybe it's easier to specify the adversarial constraints or the constraints on the learning procedure, but at some point you have, like, I have not seen a formulation yet where 
not in one way or another, you come in and tell implicitly or explicitly what a valid and invalid augmentation is. So I'm, I'm skeptical on the whole let's learn augmentations thing. I, I think what bugs me a little bit about this, the intuition of this setup is that it's not necessarily true that this is the same as that thing. And, and there's degrees of sameness, right? So with this contrast of learning, you're saying, okay, these are the same, I'm gonna give it a one or, or zero, however, and these are different, so I'm gonna give it the other label. But really it's a matter of degree, right? It's like it, you could imagine warping it in, in particular ways and maybe semantically we think it's the same thing, but it's a heavily distorted version and there seems to not necessarily be that that notion there. So it seems like if you could encode the augmentation in some meaningful way and and learn that and use that as a prediction task, they they could use that to their advantage in the efficiency of learning of like, okay, yeah, the, these are semantically similar, but they're wildly distorted or very close. And, and the degree to which you're off could power the gradient and the updates. But should the augmentations be anthropocentric or should they be kind of weird computer do you see what I mean? Because yeah. human beings, we, we, we have very human distortions and things that we understand. But if you look at these augmentations, they're the kind of things that, you know, that computers would understand. Yeah, totally. Like this, this paper, the automatic shortcut removal, you see the way it changes the image is just noise. It's like generative teaching networks or the synthetic Petri dish. They, If you let the neural networks produce their own data, they produce some kind of high frequency thing like this that we can't even interpret. But mm -hmm. like, I still think that it, one paper that I really like is Jeff Kloon's AI generating algorithms, where he's talking about how we're gonna automate the search for these building blocks. So like to Yannick's point on, we have these building blocks of rotations, flips, cropping. So how do we find these building blocks? And I think that we have these kind of adversarial or meta learning outer loop, inner loop optimizations that can put in the place to learn the building blocks. But then on Zach's side too, I'm really interested in this idea of, yeah, can we uncover the augmentation? Like this paper, self-supervised uh, GANs, the discriminator has to do these two tasks. It has to do real over fake, and it also has to predict the angle of rotation. But I, so this kind of thing of, of uh, multitask learning also recover the augmentation. It adds more structure, I think, to the overall framework in which we can inject more learning algorithms. And then it's like, like to Yannick's point, we're skeptical about can we really learn these augmentations? But I think if you design this framework where it's uncovering the augmentation, it has this adversarial component, I think you can put this in there. If that was, <laughs> if that made any sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's entirely possible because we used to, we used to handcraft features, right? It may, it's sort of the same, the same issue again. We used to handcraft features for machine learning and then, bada boom, deep learning, right? And People back then, like me back then, would have said, where well, there's nowhere you have to have valid features, blah, 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 blah. But nevertheless, deep learning comes, and for some reason, it's extremely effective at parsing out good, visually meaningful features. And okay, I mean, the same thing could happen for, for augmentations. Absolutely. The elephant in the room, though, is that we are wasting the representational capacity of these networks because we're learning the same thing many different ways. Or you could argue it the other way. Maybe all of these augmentations are helping us learn one data manifold 
and it's not as inefficient as we thought. Because you know, you can you can take the lottery ticket hypothesis way of looking at it, which is the networks are actually very efficient. You know, we just need the parameterization to help them train. Or you could take the other viewpoint, which is that they're incredibly inefficient and we're learning the same thing in myriad of different ways. So which is it? I think of data augmentation as just being contrast of learning with more priors. It's like the same idea, right? Like we're still, yeah, it's just an f of x of the x. Yeah, yeah definitely. Really... The, the, the prior is like that you say all the augmentations should actually lead to the same thing. By choosing these augmentations, it, it basically encodes the knowledge of what invariances we expect from the images. So. Yeah, and you can see that very, very well in this uh, bootstrap your own latent paper in the architecture because the the online network, you, it's special because you don't want the two outputs of these networks to be the same, but you want to take the output of the online network and then have another little neural network that predicts the output of the target network. So that that little neural network has the task of how what's the most likely representation of an image that produced this representation uh, that i had here but with an a different unknown augmentation right <laughs> and also it's not the same as me but it's like 10 steps behind me but but it's technically it is it is, you're asking it to unlearn these invariances as you said and by doing that, so this is very makes it very explicit that what this is supposed to learn is the what is what is the same across everything across this image augmented with all of these augmentations. So yeah, we're we're basically putting lots and lots and lots of priors in there. And but what 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 part of the architecture prevents the mode collapse? Is it the Moco thing? Probably, but like. There, there, there are hypotheses. Like it's pretty clear that it is a loss. Like it is probably the global optimum if you were to mode collapse. Like that, that seems pretty clear if you look at the architecture. If you, if you were to start at this, everything goes to one place point, you would stay there, right? Because, I mean, I guess with a lot of noise you could get out of it. But this is the optimal solution. So. It's probably a combination of this moving average uh, and the fact that we just take little steps in SGD. So we, you know, it's it's much easier to get into the basin of attraction where you have to make sensible representation instead of going to that degenerate situation. Well, I want to connect it to two other really popular ideas like knowledge distillation, where we have the teacher network distill the class labels into the student network. And then on the other hand, self-training, where we uh, label some unlabeled data and then train on those pseudo labels. This and this idea of this target network, I think are all connected. It's all the same idea of self-training, this uh, momentum updating target network, and then knowledge distillation, where I guess you can use another neural network to kind of bootstrap and uncrumple the paper as we connect to. I see like 10 different papers coming out, all all doing like different versions of exactly this being like <laughs> instead of this instead of the moco thing we use a distilled moco thing and i guess that's our field every time something new comes out then everyone tries to combine it combinatorically with all that came previously so uh, expect this plus gans expect this plus 
I don't know, pretty much everything. <laughs> Expect Bayesian versions of this. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, when you read papers, it seems overwhelming, doesn't it? But actually, as you say, it's a combinatorial recombination of fairly good ideas that work. And when you see the structure of these cool ideas, it, it's not actually that overwhelming, is it? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen, I've heard of people doing things because what you can do is, you know, knowledge bases like you know, Wikipedia, you can parse knowledge graphs out of Wikipedia and things like this, and you can get triples like Abraham Lincoln born in and then the year and so on. And a, a task in a machine learning task in these systems is to find links that aren't in the knowledge base yet, but are very likely. And you sometimes do this with like tensor decomposition methods or things like this. And I, I've heard of people doing this for papers. So they, they see which, which ideas are combined into new papers, and then they predict links where there is none yet, which means that this is a likely combination of ideas that hasn't been done yet. So it might be <laughs> nice. If we put something like this on the blockchain, we have like half, half of our automated scientists and then people just grab <laughs> ideas from there and try them through. Yeah, I, I had one more question on this idea of the augmentation encoding thing since you guys are so familiar with this part of the literature. So it seems to me an understanding of oneness or entity sort of implies an understanding of how that thing will behave under manipulation, right? So. If I understand that this is a dog and I'm applying a rotation, I can kind of predict what that will look like. So are you familiar with anything that takes, for instance, the uh, augmentation and the source image as input and then has to predict the output and then it is sort of like a reconstruction loss in that sense? So you'd like encode the augmentation and like say like a one hot encoded vector and then condition it on the integrate it in the forward pass? Yeah, and then, you know, maybe the rotation is a, a numeric value or the amount of Gaussian blur or whatever. But yeah, that's the input along with the source image, and then you have to reconstruct the output. Because that seems like a high fidelity, high dimensional signal to, as opposed to a zero, one, true, not true thing. Yeah, there are a lot of these, I mean, this goes into the direction of these info GANs and, and things like this. It's not, it's not explicitly the same but there are a lot of architectures where you kind of want some sort of steerability in the generation of data, right? So I guess you could take you could take that because there are all these GANs where it's like glasses on, glasses off, uh, more old person, more young person, and so on. And mm -hmm. you can steer all of this with disentangled latent things or even by feeding these latent, like you do a conditional GAN where you feed these, these things in. I guess you could technically do an image-to-image -image translator conditional on things like this. Probably, I guess it's been done. It seems within the reach of, of the doable. But you mean you mean that this should be maybe performed as a pre-training objective because we we can compute the output, right? And maybe if we let the image uh, the network predict, generate the output for us, yeah. Why not? Yeah, I was just thinking it might provide a semantic understanding, you know, give it a better chance of understanding these things because it seems to me that the augmentations are so coupled to an understanding of these entities that you would want that jointly. But 
it's sort of a, a hypothesis as an outsider. So I just wanted to bounce it off you guys. My opinion is that as a pre-training task in Vision, you don't want to go into the pixel space because like even Image GPT gave the pixel space pre-training a go with 6.8 billion parameters and it still isn't as good as these latent space models. So that'd be my criticism with like the cycle GAN image to image translation pre-training task is like, it's like the denoising autoencoder in Vision. If you're reconstructing it in the pixel space and then some kind of loss in that high dimensional output, that I think that's like, you're going to need a giant model for that, I'd predict. Well, you could also, uh, I know we're going to talk about knowledge graphs soon, but uh, one of the things they try to do is put the node embeddings and the, re and the edge embeddings in the same space, in, in a linear space, so that then you can do a semantic sort of math with them, where you say like source node mm -hmm. plus edge equals destination node. So you have like this vector triangle situation. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could sort of do that in this image space where you encode both the, uh, the source image and the one after the thing was applied to it. And, and then you sort of pass in the encoding and try to predict the uh, representation of the modified image as opposed I, to the pixel space. I, I think the, 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 the issue here is that most of these augmentations or all of these augmentations are agnostic to the content of the image. Right. So it, like in a, in a, if you turn up the brightness, it's, it's like you just have to go to, through each pixel and up the brightness. So, you know, like with usually with these pre-training objectives, you're trying to make the network learn something about the semantics of an mm -hmm. image. Right. If you random crop in two things and then you ask, is this the same? It somehow has to learn to connect different regions of, of the image and so on. And I, I fear that something like this, where you simply say, how would this look after I turn up the brightness? The, the network mm. isn't like, it can basically ignore the input, right? It can just residual connection the input to the output. And then in the last layer, add on top something like this. Now this might change <laughs> if you, once you introduce or flips and whatnot, but ideally you'd have some, a pre-training objective that is somehow dependent on or different depending on what's in the actual image. But I also don't think the ones today are necessarily doing that. Yeah, I've thought about this idea too. Like, uh, here's my take on it. Say you had a semantic segmentation model that's now labeled, <clears throat> this labeled every pixel in the image. So we have like this green outline over the car and we wanna just change those green pixels into truck and leave everything else in the image as it is, like the sky or the fire hydrant or whatever. So like, what do you think about that kind of pipeline? A semantic segmentation model first breaks it down into the objects, and then let me just take like the cat highlight <clears throat> and try to turn that into a dog. What in an unsupervised way? Like how? Well, maybe you you could still use like a pre-trained semantic segmentation model. I, I I'm I'm I just know well. In my lab, I I actually know someone that does things like this where you, but this is all done in supervised fashions, right? Where you have the masks and then you try to change these, only the masked pixels into other classes and so on. So that exists, but not necessarily as a pre-training task, I guess. Uh, so you'd have to formulate somehow what information you need. And Well, what about as a data augmentation? Like instead of rotation, we have uh -huh. this semantic yeah. manipulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I Possible.
<laughs> I think it gets into our discussion of Liyashua Bengio's talk, where we want to do this kind of, like, we want this representation where it's like, we can just, like, extend the length of the dog's head or, you know, put a different color on just yeah. his fur or something. Yeah. Well, I think this brings us to our to our next topic. Just, just to set the structure, I, I, I we're a little bit limited on time, so I, I want to talk about graphs and and also fraud and auto ML because I know these are things that uh, Zach is super interested in. On the subject of graphs, this is kind of like what Connor was just saying, right? That there is something magical about graphs. In the fraud scenario, you could model credit cards and accounts and IP addresses, and you can model how those things are related to each other. Because one of the problems we have with machine learning is fidelity. It's, it's incredibly good for pattern recognition over lots of numbers, but in the real world, we we have you know symbols and we have kind of graphs that you know that 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 objects relate to each other. So there's a whole class of methods um, around this. I wanted to just quickly share my screen and, and talk about this recent paper which is called a retrospective on knowledge graphs. Now, there always seems to be a tug of war in the machine learning world. We used to use knowledge graphs about 20 years ago, <laughs> and they had problems. They were brittle. They typically needed to be maintained by human beings. It was really difficult to maintain the data consistency between them. And there's a whole sphere of algorithms just for doing all of the various different things to manage knowledge graphs, whether it's logical inference, relation extraction, entity li linking, you know, uh, entity recognition and so on. But the amazing thing is once you have a knowledge graph, certain things like question and answering become really, really easy or, or high level reasoning becomes really, really easy because everything has been explicitly captured. But this paper goes on to suggest that there aren't many knowledge graphs in existence. And the reason for that is they're so difficult to maintain and, and, and find. So I think there's a list here at the bottom which says that there are only about 20 knowledge graphs in existence. That's a bold claim. There are only <laughs> 20 in, knowledge in graphs large, in existence. Okay. Large ones. Uh, let's see if I can find. Yeah, here we go. So um, I, I remember one, of course, Satori. I used to work at Microsoft, so that's the the, the one that they use. Of course, uh, there's one at Facebook, and Google has one. There's a company called Cycorp. I know they've been maintaining their one since about 1984. But you can almost count on two hands the the, the amount of knowledge graphs they are, and it's just because they're so difficult to to maintain. So I, I kind of I, I passed the buck over to you, Zach. Tell us about knowledge graphs. Well, I'm a, I'm not an expert on knowledge graphs, but I, let me say we need to add one more to that list because we Amazon or AWS just open sourced a new knowledge graph, uh, and we uh, just did a talk about it a couple of days ago, a live stream with one of the uh, guys that was involved with that project. But it's a uh, drug repurposing knowledge graph, so they have a bunch of information, uh, medical information about diseases, about protein interaction networks and gene interaction networks and stuff that I know nothing about other than drugs and symptoms and all this stuff. So basically the work that they did was they found these six or however many different raw data sources that were in tabular form. And then they worked with experts to create this knowledge graph and then open sourced it. And then they uh, also did some research of using representation learning, graph representation learning in an unsupervised way to try to figure out, they did a link prediction task using contrastive loss essentially. So they would have these positive pairs of like this drug inhibits this gene or you know all these different relations types and things in the graph. And then they 
looked at the link prediction task and then ranked them by how probable they were. So these these edges that don't actually exist in the graph but have high probability of existing. And then they looked at particular triples. So you have basically source node, which is some entity, and then a relation type and a destination node. So for instance, this drug inhibits this gene or whatever, and this gene is associated with this disease or, or uh, COVID-19, for instance. So what they did was they looked at this in particular for COVID-19 and surfaced the top however many uh, drugs there were. So these are drugs that are already out there for treating other diseases or symptoms or whatever. And they're trying to find, well, what are some good candidates for doing trials to treat COVID-19? So it turned out that when they looked at the top ones, there were several of them that are on the short list of the 36 that are currently being used in clinical trials. So this isn't like a, a, a rubber stamp on the process to say that this is a great way of doing it, but it's, it's an interesting research direction. And I think they're, they're continuing to work on expanding that knowledge graph. So right now, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, whether you have features associated with the entities themselves or whether it's all of the information is encoded in the graph structure itself are different. So right now there's no features in the graph, but they're adding in additional data sources that will make that available. And then that's really when the graph neural network techniques start to shine. One thing that fascinates me is how we can come up with decent representations for graphs. And it seems to be related to the number of nodes we have, because if you use a, an, an, an adjacency matrix as a way of representing a graph, then of course you have that quadratic relation. So you, you couldn't really use that for situations where you have a lot of nodes in your graph. But I do see methods like this used in a few places. For example, in the UMAP algorithm, it learns a spectral embedding, which I think is just the eigenvectors of the adjacency matrix. And you were just saying, could I, could I learn relationships that, that should be there but aren't there? And perhaps you could do that by first projecting it into, you know, similar to um, how collaborative filtering works. So you can kind of use mm. matrix factorization and then multiply them together again, and it might fill in the, the links that, that are missing. Yeah. So my understanding is there's kind of three big tasks that you can do with, with graphs. One is graph classification. So that's where you're trying to take the full graph and ascribe some sort of class to it. So for instance, whether a molecular structure is toxic or not, or you know, so you're actually encoding the connections between the atoms and the molecule and stuff, and, and that information is encoded in the graph. So that whole graph is then trying to be classified as one thing or the other. Another is like node classification. So now I have a graph, but for each node, I want to ascribe some sort of label. So we were talking about fraud earlier. So let's say I have this big graph where we have entities like an account and they're connected through all these various things like uh, whether they use the same credit card or the same mailing address or something like that. And uh, you then want to assign fraud, not fraud labels to every node in the graph. And then the other is link prediction. So that is more structural that I have this graph and I have some understanding of it, but I recognize that my graph isn't complete and I would like to assign some score to edges of whether they're anomalous and perhaps that's weird. Like this person has no reason to be connected to this person. So it might indicate like an account takeover situation or something like that, or in like a Facebook sense, 
there should be a connection between this person and this person because they share a lot of the same friends and therefore it's likely that they also know each other. So I'm going to suggest that. And then you can start thinking about this and how it can be applied to a, a huge number of different application areas because the graphs are just so generic. And if the trick is really, how do I represent my data as a graph? Because some of them are kind of obvious, like social networks. But I've seen other ones where they'll take like log information from a cloud stack, for instance, of like you have all these different logs of all these different services, and you can start creating these semantic statements of this entity is um, talking to this IP address or whatever. And you can create this huge graph and do really interesting things in, in terms of like causal analysis and learning embeddings. And so it really is the trick of how do I get my data in a graph and structure the learning problem? And you can do it ton of stuff there seems to be a trade-off right because one one representation is where you know in the adjacency matrix you can only record the way things relate to each other but you lose the metadata about every single node i watched your video about graph convolutional neural networks so is it gcns and what that does is it models it like a densely connected neural network but at every single point in the inference stage i think you you go and find all of the neighbors of this vertex and you kind of average over all of the values so that seems to give you a bit of a combination where you can kind of use the relationship information but still have the the rich metadata as well yeah it, it's uh and then back to the comment about it's sort of an art with how you design it. So one specific case is, let's say you're talking about a fraud network. You, some of them are obvious connections, like a credit card number. If they share that, it's such a high cardinality, such a specific thing that a someone that shares a credit card number to accounts, that's a very strong connection. But then you might also look at something like uh, the email domain. Like there's going to be a lot of people that use gmail.com. And maybe you want to encode that as a connection in the graph so that you can connect things that otherwise wouldn't be connected. So that when you do this neighborhood aggregation scheme, you can collect a lot of information. On the other hand, that's not nearly as specific as a credit card. So you don't want to give that necessarily equal treatment. And maybe instead you want to encode that as a feature to the node in this vector representation, as opposed to encoding it in the graph structure itself. And it's not obvious which one is going to work better in advance. So you might just have to try it. But there's a lot of options is my point, And it's not always clear what to do. Yeah, because it seems you could either transform it into a machine learning problem or you could transform it into a pure graph problem and use social network analysis type algorithms, you know, like between centrality. I mean, one thing you could do is, you know, based on the, the metadata on two nodes, you could come up with some distance function that took that into account and then and then use a graph algorithm. I, I suppose it's worth lingering on this for a second that topological methods are really good for things like fraud detection if you visualize that graph of that person that that you you get these weird topologies don't you like rings and shapes and structures that perhaps yeah. would be obvious when you visualize the graph but would be completely lost if you modeled it as a machine learning problem yeah if if you think about how you might do that without graphs it's like okay i know that these two accounts share a credit card number I'm probably not going to one hot encode all of the credit card numbers as a feature, right? That would be kind of silly because they're almost unique. So then you've just way over parameterized your model and for not much good because it's not going to generalize super well to new accounts, particularly if you know they're fraud and you shut them down and now you've put this credit card number on a blacklist or something. So 
you could do that, but it's not really a great option for deploying a model into production for actually catching fraud. So then you say, okay, well, maybe another way I could do it is I construct this graph and then I do some pre-processing as a feature engineering exercise. So for instance, how many times have I seen this credit card associated with fraud and how many times have I seen it associated with legitimate accounts? And you do that as like an offline batch process and then you put that those two features as just yet another feature in your uh, in your model. Or you can um, do everything as a graph and then do something simple like label propagation where you know you you seed everything with the labels that you know and then they kind of send their fraud not fraud signals along their connections and that converges and you use that but then the cool part about the gcns is it allows you to essentially do both at the same time so it's um, sending messages across their connections and allowing you to aggregate that information but then at the end of the day you have a vector for every node and you pass that into a dense neural network and get a classification for that particular node to me, it's there's this side of like graph convolution network and then like transformers, where transformers represent the input as a bunch of nodes that are connected to all the other nodes. And then you learn the weights of the edges. Whereas in the graph convolutional network, me, the designer of this graph data structure, I'm, I'm going to say, here are the edges and then don't like zero on the edges to the other nodes. So I think graph convolutional networks have this prior on like the initialization of the weights or uh, the edges. <laughs> between nodes compared to the transformer that learns the, you know, the edges, the edge strength and can set it to zero if, if it wants to do that. So can't we just use transformers for graph data? So interestingly, there's, there's a uh, precise relation between, I think it's the graph attention network, GAT. And you can cast that as basically a more generic version of trans. So a transformer is a special case of this network. So there's a very uh, sort of deep connection between graph methods and transformers that I can't speak off uh, off the cuff in detail about, but I know the uh, DGL is a framework, deep graph library, that works on top of things like PyTorch and TensorFlow, and it's an AWS open source project for doing these graph neural network tasks. And they have a tutorial on their website that goes through this connection. So if anyone's interested in seeing that, I know it exists. But it, it, so just to give a, a short spiel on graph attention networks, you're basically learning to attend separately over your neighbors and your attention coefficient is then the weight that you wanna to apply to that. So in the example I gave where you have credit card connections and email domain connections, you would ideal, ideally learn that, okay, this is a email domain connection, so I should treat it with less importance as something like a credit card connection. And then you, you can learn that as part of the uh, the task. Whereas that's kind of a weakness of the vanilla GCNs is it just gets all of its neighbors, averages them together, and doesn't pay any attention to the relation type or anything like that. But then there's, of course, a huge number of tweaks. So the same authors, Kip and Welling, came out with the relational GCNs. So then there's a separate projection matrix for each unique relation type. So then it can learn to discriminate between those two different things. So I'm I'm interested more in a bit of the general fraud detection methods, and I, I was always wondering: is it is it like a sort of a cat and mouse game where you develop better fraud detection, and then the fraudsters develop better ways of frauding, and then again you develop better? Or is there 
is there some sort of a silver bullet on the horizon that you work towards where is it is there like you know is there nirvana to achieve where you say well this is the method that is not really fraudable i would be skeptical of that being the case but i i can't um confidently say that it's not but to me that's what's so interesting there's two really interesting parts of fraud detection the, the first thing is what you're describing which is you're in this adversarial relationship with someone who understands your systems and is actively trying to break them and uh, it, it is very much cat and mouse and it's how do i stay ahead of the game and how do i come up with like the perfect more robust thing and then that's when you get into these interesting ideas of for instance using gans to help fill in the holes of what you haven't yet seen to kind of simulate what a fraudster might do but then making that work as a whole other story but it's a very interesting intellectual exercise and then we were talking before about adversarial examples maybe there's things there because these models as we all know that have these linear assumptions have these holes in them so there's like this security issue uh, at play as well so if you think about it your model is directly exposed to fraudsters as a black box because all they have to do is try to register an account for instance if it's an account registration model and they either get blocked or they don't so that can now go into their training data set right and if they do that enough times they can sort of create a proxy of your production model and then once they have a proxy of your production model they can do all sorts of things and get gradients and now it's a white box uh model right and then they can for instance do adversarial techniques to find potential gaps in that there's some interesting work that shows that adversarial examples that are learned on one network those same adversarial serial examples can trick totally different network architectures you know that they they generalize as being adversarial so that's kind of scary as someone who's building these production models and then <laughs> exposing them uh, so anyway that that whole part of it is super interesting the other part of it is that a lot of the techniques that are cool and we've already talked about they seem mostly focused on images and language and uh, and uh, speech but it seems like a lot of those ideas work really well in fraud but there's just not as much attention so i think there's more low hanging fruit to do interesting things in that context and to bring those ideas over and then put them in production as opposed to uh, just writing a paper and and that's kind of what i think is cool yeah i'm just thinking out loud about some potential use cases here so anti money laundering comes up to to the forefront of the mind the banks i know they hire thousands and thousands of people to do this manually they would love to have a way of doing this in an automatic way but the problem is false positives right you can't just um block loads of people from performing bank transactions because the the user experience would be so poor so it's it's almost better to err on the side of letting people make transactions even though they're likely to be fraudulent and the adversarial nature is quite interesting because lots of fraudsters might realize that the daily banking limit on a transaction is let's say 10,000 pounds so they'd do it just below that limit yes um, I mean, one of the things in banking is that I always understood that fraud detection models didn't need to be explainable, whereas credit and risk compliance did. 
So you need you need to explain why you can't get a credit card, but you don't need to explain why you thought something was fraudulent. But I would have thought that you would want it to be explainable because it would be awful having a black box and not understanding why something was flagged up. So I know you can't talk about what you do at work, but I mean, where, where would you kind of draw the line? No, I, definitely. Uh, there's the regulatory requirements when, when you're talking about like credit risk and stuff like that of explainability. And so there's not, as far as I know, regulatory requirements around enforcing on for instance, fraudulent account creation online. But at the end of the day, we're sending, or most organizations will send the model decisions to a human investigator to sign off on. And that human investigator then needs to make a decision of whether they're going to shut them down. So unless the model is just so completely confident that you can automate some small percentage, most of the time it's, hey, I'm flagging this high-risk thing and I want a person to look at it. And in that case, explainability is really important because you don't want to just say the score is 0.98. You want to say, hey, this person's or this account appears to be risky because of these things to give them a lead for something to investigate. And uh, you also want to be careful of the causal link of reporting, for instance, a confidence score, because then the human might tend to err of like, oh, most of the time when I shut down accounts that have a 0.98, it works out okay, and I don't get in trouble. And just surfacing that information can change the result. Another interesting part of it is that you you mentioned false positives. So we also have this feedback mechanism of the decisions our model makes and the labels we get, right? Because we're training our model, of course, on, on our uh, business labels. But if you shut down an account because your model said it was fraud, and then you give it the label of one as fraud, you're sort of bootstrapping this process, right? And that could lead to obvious problems. So the way a lot of organizations get around this is they'll say, okay, I need to have some understanding of my false positives. So I'm going to let an account go that I think is fraud. Then my model is saying, this is definitely fraud. I'm going to let them go anyway. And I'm going to make sure that they turn out to actually be fraud. And if they don't, then I know that my model's wrong, right? But then there's a cost to basically letting fraud go on your platform. So it's a really interesting world. And when you start thinking about the causal implications of deploying these things and making decisions based on them, but then also trying to keep this clean data set to build a robust model. Could you articulate how challenging the problem is? Because it, one way of looking at it is it it's really easy. If you were Facebook, for example, and you wanted to um, catch the fraudulent, I don't know, the, the fake accounts, you you know who's talking to who you have a graph of ip addresses you know how many friends they have you know that a normal account has this on average this number of interactions per day and this amount of diversity and it it seems to me easy to figure out the difference between a real person and a fake person so is it easy or or if it's not what are the challenges yeah so if i think it's a question of scale and it's also a question of sophistication so um, talking about facebook which I don't have any inside information on, but just sort of using my experience to think through it, there's going to be some class of things that are kind of easy to find because they're being a little bit sloppy. But as you mentioned about this arms race situation, that they get really, really sophisticated. And that's one of the most interesting things of the job for me is to find just the extreme level of sophistication. And a lot of times it's not just some guy somewhere. It's like a coordinated set of state actors or something, right? It's like 
Russia or, you know, not just some guy that's trying to make a few bucks. So I think there's a, like a large percentage of it is probably easy to find, but then there's some percentage of it that's really sophisticated, high scale and uh, hard to find. And, and then there's also a different population of people that are not operating at large scale, but they're finding high value things on a small number. And those are really hard to find because they put a lot of effort into appearing. You know, they can create an account and they can script it to be automatic and build up a reputation. And then they can create a network of accounts that all self-link, but now it looks like just a normal friend group, right? And you don't know that all of them are fake because none of them do anything malicious. And maybe they do that for six months or a year and build some credibility on this network. And then they, you know, it only takes one to be able to do some serious damage. And then the fact that you catch the other ones, it's like, who cares? Again, devil's advocate on that is we used to have this in search engine optimization. Google used to have a real problem with link farms, but it's not a problem anymore. And you have this propagation. So you only have to find that one of the things is bad and then it, you can kind of propagate it. So but before I made the mistake of assuming your adversary was bots. I mean, it could just be groups of human beings that are colluding together. And of course, it's much harder to find them. But there is this thing that if you do find some of them, then you kind of find all of them. Sure. But, uh, you know, if if you find all of them, but they got a million dollars out of you, it was probably still worth their time. And then when they do it again, <laughs> like, yeah, you'll find them eventually. But when you the label you're talking about propagating assumes that basically you've been defrauded and you found a, a case of fraud. And at that point, it's too late. Right. The hard part is identifying them and taking some sort of measure before they drain you is there is there something that you're allowed to tell us where you like thought like wow that's really smart like where you discovered something and and you were like okay that's you know genius well this is a fraudster <laughs> this isn't something related to what we found on inside the company but this is just a new story i read somewhere that i think indicates this that there was like a, a jpeg image of i think it was uh scarlett johansson an, an actress and somehow through ways i don't understand they encoded information into that image where when it was put into a database it would open up this particular command in sql that would allow you to run oh. arbitrary machine code and then like issue I guess SQL statements or or data dumps. So just by getting this image into your data set, if you didn't have the proper protections in place, that it would exploit some vulnerability and uh, extract information. So things like that. It's like it's so far beyond what any reasonable engineer would be expected to know because those people are so specialized in security vulnerabilities and stuff like that that it it's almost an unfair advantage because. They have such specialized knowledge. You know, I'm a guy that spends all my time thinking about machine learning or whatever, but not necessarily security vulnerabilities of, you know, all the world out there of that. And uh, what to me seems innocuous might be highly malicious, and it's hard to know. That's crazy. Bringing it back to knowledge graphs. I'm interested to know your opinion on this. I I think they are still relevant in enterprise today. Let's imagine you need to implement enterprise search 
you need to have self-service BI and data science. You need to have knowledge stores in the company and, and so on. And the typical search engine, I mean, if you're a Bing or a Google, what does it do? Well, it has a it has a full text index, which is a kind of reverse index. And then it will deconstruct your query and it will know what you're searching for. Are you searching for dogs or shopping items or blah, blah, blah. And if you're searching for shopping items, it might redirect your query to some underlying semantic store. Or you might ask, how old is Obama? It would go to the knowledge graph. And all of this stuff is hidden from you, but it, there's a lot of complexity there. So how would you design this? Do you think there should be one monolithic knowledge graph in companies? Or do you think we should have different semantic stores? How should it be designed and maintained? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't I don't think I am the right guy to ask it to. That I don't have much experience operationalizing knowledge graphs at scale. So I, I don't think I have a great answer. Well, the, the, I think it's an interesting architectural problem because in, in large companies, you have many, many groups of people and every single group is interested in their particular type of semantic data. Mm. So this part of the business might be interested in dogs and this part of the business might be interested in trainers. And if you have one monolithic knowledge graph, then they can't all you know, independently ship. You need to have a kind of decoupling. But then you have this problem. How do they both embed their semantic information into the search engine or how do they make it discoverable? So it's, yeah, it's, it's really, really difficult. But there are advantages to having knowledge graphs. Like you can easily do question and answering and you can do a bunch of reasoning and high level tasks. But but you've got to manually maintain the knowledge graph. And how do you store it and how do you maintain it? Yeah, I think there's several companies that you know, basically make that promise, right? That they can come in and they can tie together your data stores and allow you to discover things and make connections that previously weren't possible. But as you're alluding to, inside real organizations that have a history and departments and bifurcations and different management structures, it's really, really hard, particularly in um, more conservative organizations like banking because of the regulatory environments and all that, that to get access to some of these data stores is first of all really difficult and might require Herculean effort to get alignment at the top levels and to sell this idea. The, the other part is data quality, that even in some of the most sophisticated organizations, you assume that they're going to have their ducks in a line when you just write the SQL query to get the data out, but then you just find all these problems and it's like, no one knows what this column means or where it comes from, or it makes these assumptions and there's not data quality metrics that are guarding this and proactively raising uh, flags. So it could be really hard, I, I imagine, to build a high quality knowledge graph and to both service that infrastructure and, and get all the organizational things to lock in to make it happen. But if you could, I, I imagine there'd be tremendous value. Yeah, but I suppose this is my assertion. If you're a, a Google or a Microsoft, you, you can do it. But it, I, I, I question whether it's even within the reach of the average corporation below that tier. Yeah, I mean, even getting like the clickstream data from the marketing department joined to the fraud data or whatever. I mean, those are usually entirely different organizations with entirely different management st structures and data stores and all that. And like the primary key between those things so that you could join them together may not even exist, right? Because no one designed this holistically, but these are all sort of bottom-up systems that grew to serve a particular function. So integrating them can be in practice just either impossible or very difficult unless you're kind of redoing it from scratch. Indeed. What do you think about the use of graphs in 
machine learning. I mean, bringing it back to machine learning, uh, we were talking about Yoshi Abengio, and he has this kind of consciousness prior, which he calls it, and it's essentially a sparse factor graph. So you can have all of these recombination of, of different things. I guess the question to you is, do you think that we need something like that in machine learning, or will it always be magic and kind of implicit in, in, in the deep learning model? Do, do we need graphs? I'm not familiar with that particular work, but I think there's a lot of information in graphs that can't efficiently be captured uh, by the methods I'm aware of anyway. That, For instance, you could, you could always imagine a feature engineering exercise to avoid needing to uh, use the graph explicitly in the learning problem, as we talked before about like counting the number of fraud connections with a particular credit card or something like that. But then there's always going to be these novel signals inside the graph that your feature engineering missed. So it could be that, well, yeah, this credit card doesn't share any, but that credit card is linked to an account that has this IP address that links a bunch of other fraud accounts. So it's like two hops away or a different relation type. And then whatever rule you came up with to quantify that, it might be totally blind to those sorts of things. Whereas if you have um, an algorithm that can operate on the graph itself and, and sort of fine tune the features similar to how deep learning works on images, right? It's like, you just give it the thing and then it'll find the representations that most make it able to solve this task. I think that's super powerful and we're just starting to get the tools that make that practical. Like if you just think about the process of doing a mini batch in a learning task like this. So if you have a one GCN layer, you need to get all of the neighbors of every node. So uh, if you have a mini batch of, let's say, 512 nodes and you need to calculate its embedding, well, you don't only just need to pull those 512 nodes, but you need to pull the neighbors of those 512 nodes just to compute the embedding, which you then pass into the, the downstream task. But if you have two GCN layers, then you need the neighbors of the neighbors. So just creating that mini batch, you have to do this like pretty exhaustive graph search and then construct all these things and coordinate and do all the message passing. And that's not trivial. And a lot of the uh, operations that deep learning frameworks have optimized, some of them aren't represented in that way. So we might need new, for instance, kernel operations or deep learning at like the CUDA level or whatever to, to make that work really well and fast. And we're starting to get there. But uh, doing yeah, deep that... learning on big graphs before wasn't really easy. And it's just now starting to become easy, I think. That begs quite an interesting question, whether the time complexity is better to pre-compute a graph where you do, you know, you, you do the label passing, but you do some kind of value passing versus do the mini batches on the graph convolutional network, which is faster. Well, I think it's more a memory constraint that these large graphs, you can't fit in memory, in GPU memory all at once. So how do you, how do you do it, right? It's like uh, computationally in, in memory, it, it's so expensive that you almost have to do batching or you're very much limited in the size of graph you can do. So it's like, okay, now I have to figure out batching just so I can handle Facebook's graph, for instance. And and I may not even be able to fit that in a, mach a single machine, right? So now I have a cluster of GPUs and I need to coordinate and segment them so that I'm not having all this overhead between passing things over the network, right? So it, it gets really hairy pretty quick. It, it's not as easy as this 
image lives on this GPU and I get a gradient update and I have a key value store that coordinates the gradient updates, um, which itself can be tricky, particularly if you have like sparse representations and, and graphs are fairly sparse. But it gets really tricky when you have these interdependencies and the nodes that are in a particular neighborhood should probably be on the same partition and, and all that stuff. Very cool. Let's finish off with automated machine learning. I, I, I know that you were instrumental at Amazon building that out. And one of the things that worries me about AutoML auto is this notion of black box thinking and machine learning that we are. And we keep talking about democratization of AI and people can just press a button and generate a machine learning model. Is that dangerous or is it revolutionary? Yeah, that's a, a dichotomy. It's like, <laughs> is it dangerous or is it revolutionary? <laughs> I think there's a lot of potential pitfalls in clicking a button and not understanding uh, what you're getting, particularly if the thing you're interacting with has very little understanding of the problem you're trying to solve. So if it, a lot of the AutoML, like open source things out there, it's like, it doesn't know what you're trying to do. It's just tabular data and it figures out like the uh, data types of whether it's categorical or not. And then there's some standard recipe of how to treat this. And then there's probably some either ensembling or hyperparameter search or you know, something like that that combines a bunch of stuff and, and tries to tune and, and get the best model. And that can be great. Like if you're a data scientist and you're trying to automate some piece of your work, I think that's a helpful tool. I don't think it's going to get you to a place where someone who has no understanding of machine learning can click a button and generate a production model. But uh, I think another way to solve the problem is to design task-specific AutoML pipelines. So for instance, if you have a, a fraud detection AutoML pipeline, you can take a lot of that prior knowledge of a fraud group you have some semantic understanding of what data you have. So not just that this is a categorical column, but this is an IP address associated with the sign-in, for instance. Well, then you can do a lot more stuff, right? You, you understand semantically what's going on. You understand the task. You understand what types of features typically work. And then when you're doing these tuning processes, you can make some real progress. And I think that can work well, even if you don't, if you're not a data scientist. But having that understanding in context, I think, is what makes it work well. I mean, what at what point does it at what point does it kind of stop being auto ML and just is like, OK, you know, we, we do <clears throat> some sort of a smart grid search over uh, number of layers and and learning rate and so on, because of the more you know of a problem, right, the the more constrained it becomes. And ultimately, what you what you want to do with auto ML in that case is just emulate what a data scientist would do and even even in that like the data scientists have been doing that exact same thing for the longest time just not with neural networks but with uh, i don't know spss or something load data right it figures out what the columns are and then it does a linear regression or a an anova test on it and yeah it 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 seems auto ml is this this kind of this word that <laughs> A lot of people throw like use for a lot of different things, and in that case, I think it's it's pretty pretty smart where you can say I know a lot about the problem, and 
I know that a data scientist, they would just do, they would first find the good architecture out of these possibilities, and then they would find, you know, a good which features, and then it would find a good learning rate and so on. And and to automate that makes makes a total sense, it seems to me. But but to, to automate machine learning in general, it's sort of like, you know, programming by just going to Stack Overflow and copy-pasting code. It's like, oh, how do I sort list? Okay, copy-paste. And then how do I do that? And then you have all these assumptions that the people made or didn't make when they constructed that code and you just clob it together. Uh, it seems like if you do AutoML generically, that's kind of where, you, where you're going. It, it's certainly true that there are a lot of repetitive tasks that data scientists do, you know, in terms of normalizing the data and encoding mm -hmm. certain types of categorical fields and, and so on. But I feel that the emphasis on AutoML is on the wrong end of the spectrum. It's more on, oh, let, let's choose a bunch of different algorithms and see how they work. And let's do a bunch of different hyperparameter optimizations. And especially with classical ML, the only thing that matters is designing good features. I mean, everything else is irrelevant. All of the algorithms are, are just slightly different ways of kind of weighting the features together. And, you know, I, I give the example of telling the time. If I, if, if I give you 10,000 images of, of clock faces, a data scientist would figure out pretty quickly how to learn the cosine of the hour hand. And you could just write a line of code, you know, you could tell the time. Whereas if you put it into an auto ML algorithm, it would do all sorts of weird and wonderful things and it would encode stuff. And it probably wouldn't work anyway, because most of them are for structured data, not for vision data. But it's just a classic example of if I just, if I used my brain and did something a little bit intelligent rather than just throwing it into this algorithm that just permutes all of this random stuff, and then it produces something that I don't necessarily understand how it works. Is, 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 that, is that a good thing? Yeah. Well, I think you've clipped your imagination on it. Like something like AutoML zero, it's like as long as your task has a lot of like robustness and like edge cases built into the evaluation of it, like this kind of texture search is really exciting to me. I, I don't understand the skepticism. I think it needs a lot of computing though, but like, don't you think like a program synthesis searching for just the program is pretty exciting and can come up with more than we could? I think that's different. I think auto, um, auto ML zero designs, because in the deep learning world, it, it is a black box and the input and the output is fixed. Whereas I think the, these auto ML algorithms that are on, let's say Azure and AWS, they they also encode all of the information and they try lots of different algorithms and it it seems to be a little bit more diffuse i suppose auto ml zero is just learning a whole bunch of different combinations of functions between an input and an output yeah i think it's like there's levels to the search space it's like with a small search space we'll do like like learning rate or number of layers we'll do like grid search then random search then we're doing like bayesian optimization with a gaussian process then we start to get into a more mid to large scale auto ml where we might use like a reinforced learning controller and evolution search or recently we're seeing like differentiable search like darts if someone's interested in looking into it but like this evolution search with AutoML is like this large scale, massive search space. I think that is just can be, it's like Jeff Kloon in his paper AIGAs, he talks about we can either find all of these building blocks of AI and then take on the task of how do we put all the building blocks we found together, or we could do something like AutoML zero that could discover the combination and all the building blocks at once. So maybe, maybe Zach, you in, in the kinds of AutoML you know, what are what are the, the kind of smartest things in there? What what are the kind of things that maybe 
if you just if you're just a programmer going about this, you wouldn't put in there. Yeah, I think the the real benefit of AutoML in in this context is it's a productivity tool, and it it's more about reproducibility and robustness and codifying best practices, and the prior knowledge of our experts of that have been working in this space. And it's like there's a tremendous value in being able to click a button and it in the same way every time pull the data in process the data and like do the transformations do the same search and then having this uh, you know unit test integration test stitched together in these pipelines modularity and taking like the best practices of software engineering and applying that to this thing it's like to me we all, if you build a lot of machine learning models, you have like your own tool set that you've developed. Of, you know, I have this code over here and I kind of structure it this way. And maybe I take a Jupyter notebook and first I do this and that. But I don't know about you guys, but I've always had this fantasy of sort of getting more principled about that, of having, a, you know, a repo that is really deliberate about designing the library and the APIs so that it just makes it really easy to iterate quickly. And I only have to write certain code once and I can rely on it. And I think AutoML takes advantage of that because in my experience, there's so many bugs that get introduced that are hard to find when you're building models, particularly if people are in like Jupyter Notebook environments. And then it's just this question of how do you apply software engineering principles and testing and integration testing, but in the context of machine learning? Uh, that's that, a tricky that's thing to do. Before you run cell three, you must run cell five twice. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that worries me is that if you remove too much of the friction out of the machine learning process, the the lack of due diligence will create a deficit somewhere else. So if you have a governance process in your machine learning lifecycle, you might say, well, how explainable does it need to be? What's the severity of this model? What goes wrong if this thing makes the wrong decision and so on and th th there should be a kind of process there where you say okay well in that case i need to have this type of model after i've built the model i need to have this level of explainability i, I might use uh, you know lime and shap and some of these interactive methods of explainability the ml engineers might go ahead and uh, create some semantic testing to test the robustness and the the fairness and the bias and all of that and these are all very deliberate things that need to be done and it just seems to me that in the in the grand scheme of things, auto ML doesn't really save you any time. It might even cost you time because later on the ML engineer is going to be tearing their hair out, saying, "I don't even understand how this thing works, and how how do I semantically test this? What's a good test for this?" Because it's just a black box as far as they're concerned. Yeah, I, I don't think all ML auto ML solutions have to create these complicated black box ensembles and stuff like that. Right? You could do that. And I think a lot of the existing open source solutions, that is their technique, right? It's that they're trying all these different things and all they care about is improving the um, performance on the holdout set and all that. And then of course, there's all these questions of, well, how do you actually create the training and holdout sets? Because your decisions at that point can have such enormous consequences on the results. I think people that compete on Kaggle have really taken that to heart because it entirely comes down to how you are doing your holdout evaluation and, and getting on a test set. That's such a critically important thing. And it's something that 
I think there's a lot of magic in the auto ML piece there that if you're really principled about how you do that and you try different things, you can make a lot of progress that it's just really hard to duplicate that as an individual all the time, unless you have access to some code base that someone else or you have developed and really made sure is bulletproof. So that's one piece. The second piece is that what you've described of generating the model and the reports, first of all, I think a lot of that can be automated, the reporting side, which is valuable in itself. But once you do that and you sign off and say, okay, now we want to put this thing in production. Well, how do you put this thing in production and not screw up? So like I've applied these transformations during training and I need to make sure it's these exact same transformations that are applied at inference time. And a lot can go wrong in that process of translating from the thing somebody built over here and the thing that's running in production, particularly if software engineers that are used to a different stack like Java or something, or you know, someone tosses it over the fence like, hey, our regulatory office and whatever, we've signed off on this, so please go implement it. That can be dangerous, right? So another thing an AutoML pipeline can do is take that ops pain away and create it in such a, a manner that you have a lot of confidence because it's using, for instance, the same code base under the hood to do this versus that, or it serialized it in some clever way and it it was baked in from the beginning right yeah you can produce an auto ml prediction model and then in inference when you productionize your model on a flask web server or something on usually it's on kubernetes or it might be on SageMaker. you're saying because the same code is running you know it the, the model will be able to understand the data but I'm, I'm just asserting that that then means that you couldn't operationalize it let's say on on spark on your data lake yeah, I think it depends how you structure it. So that's just a, a challenge in general with all these different frameworks. Like Spark has its own kind of thing carved out, and it's really hard to get something from, for instance, uh, scikit-learn to Spark. There's like this mleap library that has had some development that allows you to kind of do that. Or things like XGBoost have ways that you can uh, create a Java class, and then uh, maybe you can call that using something like, man, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but there's all sorts of these intermediary representations like Onyx that are trying to be agnostic about the framework. And then there's some serialization scheme that takes it from one into this, and then there's a scoring engine. But I think we're at this place now where so many people use so many different things and that's great and it's interesting and it serves like the research community, but then getting it in production is another thing because a lot of those engineering stacks are in Java, for instance. So how do you get it from here to there? And then people create things, but to me, that's still a big kind of Wild West situation where there's been things like PMML, PFA, Onyx, all these solutions that attempt to do that, but there hasn't been like this clear winner of this is what the industry is going to do. So right now it's still just a big challenge and getting something that automates that is a huge success for a business at this point. That's fair. I think the automaticity is is the big thing here. That there's that reproducibility, that getting away from human error. And my intuitive aversion is just because of the lack of visibility, just being able to understand what it does. But in principle, there's no reason why you couldn't generate some kind of a computation graph or a workflow which I could visualize. So I could still understand exactly what you were doing, but you're saving me a lot of time in the process. Yeah, I also think there's a gap between what I have in mind when I'm thinking about auto ML, which really is about this, as you're describing this automation piece, plus kind of 
codifying best practices, uh, which also includes some hyperparameter search and stuff like that. But that's very different than what a lot of people think about with AutoML and a lot of the open source solutions of this thing that runs maybe an evolutionary algorithm under the hood and just tries all this different stuff and ensembles and you end up with this huge model that does God knows what and it's really hard to audit, right? That is called AutoML and maybe is what most people think of when they use the term. And I don't have much confidence in that myself is something that's going to greatly move the needle unless it moves to a different area, but not probably to democratize in the short term. But you yeah. know, I, I haven't thought that much about that. I, I've been more focused on the productionizing for businesses and making it robust and bulletproof. Okay, I think that's a really good distinction. I think my conception of AutoML was let's try loads of random things, a little bit like architecture search. So let's try mm -hmm. encoding this thing as a categorical. Let's try encoding it as a number. Let's try doing this. Let's try doing this. Let's try this algorithm. Let's try this hyperparameter. I think I know the Azure service is actually a little bit data driven. So they know if I've seen this type of rectangular data with this number of columns before, this particular algorithm with this set of hyperparameters worked well before. So let's try that. And, you know, but it just seems arbitrary. Yeah, I think that's a fair criticism. And I just don't have much experience with them in practice. But sort of as an outsider looking at that, I, I agree. I have some concerns there. But as Connor was alluding to, I, I don't think uh, it's ruled out as an opportunity to do really cool things in the future. I don't think it's it's probably there yet. And, you know, really, they just have wrappers around some some search stuff and, and have tried to like piece together the inputs and outputs and maybe automate some stacking ensemble stuff. But, you know, that that's really just some scripts that are running on your data set, right? When you call dot fit, it, it does a few more things. So to me, that is interesting, but it's not going to uh, solve any of the fundamental problems I face because in my world, getting the next 1% of accuracy or whatever, like I'm not trying to get state-of-the-art results on some data set so that I can publish in a paper, ignoring the cost of implementation. What I really want is something that I can rely on and can do a good job. And then in a month when I have more data and the fraudsters have changed their patterns, I can click the button and get something just as reliable but has the most recent information. And uh, it's auto-generated a lot of the reporting, so the auditing process is easy and all that stuff. Like That's what I need, not the next 2% because it did some cool stacking thing. I can't argue with that. And you can't trust these numbers anyway. When Yannick reviewed the, you know, the bring your own latent paper, they reproduced the algorithm from SimCLR and the numbers were completely different. And the, just the, the sensitivity of these algorithms to different hyperparameters. I mean, the, the BYOL people didn't even release the code for their paper. They just released pseudocode, which doesn't exactly inspire confidence. That's just deep mind. <laughs> it's just deep mind. Okay, well, it's been emotional. <laughs> it was a lot of thank fun. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Zach. I hope you join us again. Yeah, this was fun. Anytime, and, and hopefully you guys can, I don't know, we, we can think of something else to do, like interview or live stream on, on the other channel as well to get you guys in front of a different audience, but or maybe it's the exact same audience, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, I think there's there's some things we can do to keep collaborating for sure. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining cool. us.